Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. We have four scripture readings this morning. You know, because why not? It's Pentecost. It's Pentecost. Uh, in my church tradition growing up, like Pentecost, man, we might be here four or five hours today, so buckle up. Um, second service will just join what has already started here. No, I'm teasing, but we do want to tell a little bit of the story. So we just wrapped up the Easter season. Pentecost serves as a bridge that moves us toward ordinary time, and uh, we'll talk more about that. But throughout Easter, we relied heavily on the prodigal son story as a framework for reconciliation as a form of resurrection. And uh, I promise not to talk about the prodigal son for at least a little while. I, I know I've done that quite a bit, but, uh, but that was our framework. And, uh, and then two weeks ago, as Andy alluded to, we talked about house churches. And if you have not yet been read in on that, if you uh, are like, what are they talking about? Please go back from two weeks ago, listen to the podcast. We shared uh, about a new way we're gonna start gathering starting in August. Um, once a month, we'll gather in smaller house churches. So I wanna make sure you're read in on that. I'll allude to it later here in the sermon. Um, so make sure you're, you're up to speed on that on the podcast, not from last week, but from two weeks ago. Um, and you can find that on iTunes. Okay, so now what we're going to do is transition from the Easter season into Pentecost. And it feels like the best way to make that transition is to hear the story. And so this morning over these four scripture readings, they're pretty brief. It's not going to take too long. But we're going to tell the story of what uh, begins before Easter and finds its way into Easter morning and then eventually into Pentecost morning. So let's listen. From John 14, I will not leave you orphaned. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. She turned around to see Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to, my father, to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
from Acts 1. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over the course of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. From Acts 2. When the Feast of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, gale force. No one could tell where it came from. It filled the whole building. Then, like a wildfire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks, and they started speak, speaking in a number of different languages as the Spirit prompted them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, y'all. So we get this story that takes us through Easter and uh, the resurrection of Jesus and then into his ascension and then into Pentecost. And we see in Pentecost then the birthday of the church, uh, this celebration. Our kids are getting cupcakes downstairs later today to celebrate the birthday of the church because it's here the church is born. It's here the church is, is given marching orders. You know, at Christmas we are spectators and at Easter we are spectators. But Pentecost gets us in on it and it gives us marching orders. It sends us out to be a part of what is happening in this story. And uh, so I noticed two distinct phases here uh, in what we just read. And the first is, uh, the, is what I'll call wait, right? This is before Pentecost. Wait. Jesus says the Holy Spirit must be sent to you. Like, don't leave Jerusalem. Don't cling to me and don't leave Jerusalem. Don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes, right? He says you will receive power. And, uh, and then he goes into this room in John 20. They're locked in this house. They're full of fear. Jesus has been raised, but they are under threat. And Jesus enters into that room with this message of deep, abiding peace. He breathes on them the way God breathed on Adam and filled him with life. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he says, I will not leave you orphaned. I will come to you. And so first, before anything else, first, the Holy Spirit descends into the cracks and crevices of our own lives and reorients our lives, renovates the home of our hearts into a place where God lives. The Spirit prolongs the incarnation. What began in Jesus' incarnation is prolonged to eternity with the Holy Spirit because the Spirit of God is God with us, Emmanuel, forever. I will not leave you orphaned. But then, after they receive Pentecost, there's this sharp turn where wait becomes go, right? And the Holy Spirit sends the Jesus followers, just as the Holy Spirit was sent to Jesus followers. Now the Holy Spirit sends Jesus followers out to others. And Jesus' instruction changes. It was like, stay inside, don't do this yet. Wait until I come to you with the Holy Spirit. And then suddenly it changes to, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. In the same manner, in the same way, with the same spirit, doing the same kinds of things that the Father sent me, now I send you. 
And once you receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the peace I leave with you, peace I give you, my peace, I do not give as the world gives, we receive the peace, and now it's time to pass the peace, right? And we start passing the peace of Christ to the world around us, the peace of Christ to you. We go to the coffee shop, the peace of Christ to you. We go into our schools, the peace of Christ to you. We may not say those words, but that's what's showing up in our presence, filled with the Holy Spirit, We bring the peace of Christ to a world that desperately needs it, and we live as witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so a key theme for today is that the Holy Spirit sends the church to people, not people to church. The Holy Spirit sends the church to people, not people to church. And tongues of fire descend on them. And it's like their lives become these burning altars of witness, right? Like they're alive now. They tell the story just by walking around. And they start speaking in these other languages, not for the sake of ecstatic experience, but that they might tell the story and the wonders of God in a language that others can understand who would not have been able to understand otherwise. And I think that shows up all the time in our lives. I, I, you know, I've told many of you, I feel like that's what happened at city council a year ago. We got to show up and tell the story of how God's at work in a way that they could understand. I think that's a Pentecostal thing happening, right? And so in those ways, we want to be a Pentecostal church, meaning that we believe everything Jesus said can actually be lived, like really lived. We want to receive that. And so all of that uh, forms a backdrop for the house churches that we're going to walk in, uh, walk into in the months ahead. And I want to spend a few minutes uh, just kind of talking a little bit more about house churches in light of Pentecost, because the church is birthed at Pentecost, and what was birthed there has never died and never will die. Jesus says, the gates of hell itself will not prevail against my church, right? The church is going to go on. <laughs> uh, and It is also true that from time to time, the community birthed by the Holy Spirit loses its sight on the unique spirit-empowered way it is is called to show up in the world. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we being the church? Are we living as the church? Are we operating as the church? And one of the questions we asked when we went down those those, uh, list of questions about house churches, one of the questions that came up was like, is this really church? Like gathering in a mid-sized community, gathering in a living room, gathering around a potluck, is that church? And, uh, you know, we have, uh, in our day and age, accustomed ourselves so much to a building and a band and a sermon that anything that doesn't check those boxes doesn't feel like church. And uh, and so, so much so that we might think of house churches like, yeah, those are small groups and that's good, but it's not really church. But, but I believe, actually, because the Eucharist is there, the prayers are there, the community is there, the teaching is there, that we are actually leaning deeply into church. And so it begs the question, like, what is church? And how has our understanding of it changed over time? And we could spend a seminary semester on that topic, like church history, right? And we don't have time for a seminary semester, but I am going to give us a quick tour de force through some church history uh, and, and you may find this fascinating. You may find this like, oh, you know, I didn't, I didn't need to know that. But I think it's interesting as we move into this new season. And uh, so this is going to be overly simplistic, but I want to take us through the last 2,000 years of church history in the next five minutes. Uh, and I'm going to rely on this book here called The New Parish, which is a fascinating, fantastic book on how the church might show up in, uh, in this Uh, day and age. It's one of the reasons why our church is called The Parish. This book has been really formative 
uh, for us. And so let's rewind all the way back before Pentecost to the Old Testament. This big part of the Jewish identity, the Jewish story, was the temple. The temple was this magnificent, giant, architectural wonder that they would gather in and worship together, a magnificent large church building, right? But then the exile comes. Nebuchadnezzar shows up, the Babylonian exile. They're taken into captivity, and they need new ways of worshiping. And what emerged when the temple was no longer available was the synagogue. And the synagogue became this place that was much smaller, much more rooted in a particular neighborhood. In fact, synagogues were built within three quarters of a mile of where people lived because that was the distance you were allowed to travel on the Sabbath, right? And so what's happening here is this hyper-local thing is beginning to emerge. The whole idea is to develop a particular neighborhood and community around a local worship space where that space could be in the neighborhood, of the neighborhood, for the neighborhood, with the neighborhood. And so after Pentecost happens, what we're talking about today, the early Christians don't see themselves as Christians. They see themselves as, you know, in the same tradition they've always been in, except that now they're proclaiming that the Messiah has come. And so they keep doing all the things they've been doing while pronouncing that the Messiah is here. The Messiah Jesus has come, and he's been raised from the dead. And so they keep going to synagogue. They keep showing up. We see that in in the book of Acts. Uh, but as they show up, they're announcing that the reign of God has begun in Jesus. And this becomes increasingly a threat, and they become then increasingly unwelcome in the synagogue. And so when the synagogue stops being available to them, they gather in homes, right? They gather in homes. A lot of us went through a similar thing about two years ago when we could no longer gather in our church buildings and we were sent to gather in different kinds of spaces. It wasn't the first time in history that God has reoriented his church to gather in different ways. And so uh, they take seriously then what Jesus said that where two or three gather, there I am, right? That's about as complex as it needs to get. Where two or three gather, there I am. And they begin meeting in these homes. And so we see this movement from temple to synagogue to home. It's becoming smaller. It's becoming more local. It's becoming more neighborly. And it's in this context that Christians distinguished themselves as exceptionally loving people in a context that was already far more communal than our world is today. We are a far more individualistic society. And in that communal society, even so, the Christian community, the followers of the way, stood above the rest as this exceptionally loving community that was involved in what was going on in where people lived. And they began showing up, serving their neighbors. They got involved in economic issues, in justice issues, in caring for the poor issues. They, they showed up in these really practical ways. And that's the kind of context that Paul begins preaching in. As we get into the New Testament, Paul preaches and he goes and he writes these letters that we're all familiar with to the early church. But he doesn't just write these letters and blast them off into contextless environments. What Paul is writing to is a community he has lived with, right? And so Paul would go to these cities, and we call them cities, but that may be misleading. A city in that day and age was about 50,000 people, right? And an average community was about 30,000 people. So what we're talking about is like a third of Roswell. What we're talking about is a walkable community. And when Paul's writing these letters, he's writing to people he's passed on the street, right? He's writing to people he knows. He's writing to people, to places, to, to corners, to alleys that he has been in. 
and he took with him about 40 people on average. It wasn't just Paul going into some community and raising his voice and shouting at people. What he did was take 40 or so people with him, a mid-sized community, a house church, if you will, and together, in the ordinary course of life, he stays for two years in Ephesus. He stays for 18 months in Antioch. He stays for a long time in Corinth, and they simply, in everyday life, share that the reign of God has come in Jesus. And that's what forms the New Testament. And so we see that kind of way of of spreading the gospel, not in a depersonalized, contextless way, but to move into the neighborhood uh, and to take responsibility as the people of God who point to God in a particular time and space. And so they got to know their neighbors, they shared meals together, they got involved in the problems of the community, and, uh, and the, we get this quote here from the New Parish, that, I, that book that I mentioned, that I think is a really fascinating quote. They say this, when local expressions of the church embrace their limitations and accept responsibility, they weave together a fabric of reconciliation and renewal. However, we will also see in church history that when the church pursues power, political, or economic influence, or even mission as an end in itself, its faithful presence is compromised. And wouldn't you know it, power becomes a seductive thing. And so in the fourth century, things begin to shift. And what happens is the emperor Constantine is converted to Christianity And in one fell swoop, in a short period of time, Christianity goes from being this underground, persecuted, organic thing to becoming the state religion that you have to believe in. And so it becomes powerful. It moves from margins to the center, and we call this the era of Christendom. And initially what begins in Christendom is this attempt to centralize and unify faith. And so what was locally led becomes regionally led. We start setting up bishops. We start setting up hierarchy, right? There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but it starts becoming more systematic. It starts becoming less in touch with the neighborhood, with the actual places where people live. And and this attempt to unify the faith ironically ends up leading to great schism in the faith. And we all know the story. There's the East and West split. And then later on, the Protestant Reformation comes, and soon we have, on top of the Roman Catholic Church and the Ethiopian Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, we get the Lutheran Church, the State Church of Germany. We get the Anglican Church, the State Church of England. We start getting more and more breaks, and of course we know that that becomes embedded in the Protestant DNA. We protest, and we protest, and we break, and we break, and we break. And we get less and less local. And so uh, there were exceptions, but the shift looks a little bit like this. If you go to the next one for me, the early church is marked by service where the Christendom era becomes marked by influence. And the early church is church on the margins. The Christendom church over time becomes church at the center. There is an assumption still to this day that church belongs at the center of a city, the center of a culture. So much so that when it doesn't feel like we're a Christian enough nation anymore, we start to panic, right? We don't know what to do. We assume our birthright is at the center. And yet the reality is the church thrives on the margins. The early church is marked by shared local leadership. Over time, it becomes increasingly professionalized leadership. The early church, emphasis on love of neighbor. Christendom, emphasis on systems of belief and governance. And so whereas the early church showed up in incarnational and formational and missional ways, Christendom over time begins trying to show up in attractional ways. The Holy Spirit, rather than leading the church out, people start saying, oh, people need to come to us, right? 
And so, uh, as that happens, churches begin living above their place because uh, we don't need to care so much about the neighborhood. We need to get people to come to us. And by whatever means we need to get people to come to us, then that's what we'll do, right? And so we eventually get to the rise of the modern era, and I'll, I'll wrap this up in a second. We get to the modern evangelical movement. The church becomes dislocated. It becomes dislocated because a theological shift begins to happen. What we start emphasizing is personal salvation above all else, and there's certainly a place for that in the story. But when we only care about everybody getting personally saved, it no longer matters if I live by that person or not. And so we start seeing the church caring less about local presence and start caring more about reaching everybody by any means possible as much as possible. And so there's uh, this thing that starts to happen where churches lean on this uh, idea called the homogenous church growth principle. (laughs) And what it means is people like to hang out with other people who do things like them and look like them. And so the church starts realizing, uh, especially in the evangelical modern era, that I can get people to come to church more if I build a church that already looks like them and already feels like the things they want. And so we start, then combine this with what's happening historically, you get the post-World War era and you get the, the car era. So now I used to be limited to my neighborhood, but now I can drive 30, 40 minutes, no big deal. And I used to be in the city, but what happened post-World War is people were driven out to the suburbs to get away from the problems right? And so we start getting the rise of these regional, oversized, huge churches, right? And I'm not knocking, there are plenty of great large churches that I know, plenty, and wonderful things happen through them. But what starts to happen is it becomes less about being present in a neighborhood and more about having these regional hubs where I can go to that church because stylistically they match who I am. Or I'll drive 40 minutes that way because stylistically that church matches who I am. We start removing, dislocating ourselves from the natural diversity of a neighborhood where I have to rub shoulders and rub arms with people who do not think like me, do not look like me, do not live like me. And I get to show up to that as as a witness to good news. And instead, we start gathering around others who already think like us. And then afterwards, we drive home 40 minutes back to our house. We pull into our driveway. We shut the garage, and it stops there. And I've been personally saved, but what becomes of my neighborhood, right? So you see where I'm going with that. So with the best intentions, the very strategy of the church began drawing people out of neighborhoods. And is it any wonder then that the church seems disengaged with the everyday struggle of ordinary life? That it seems like this thing you can do if you want to, right? And we see those consequences here in Atlanta. We see racial and economic and political divides and sprawling suburbia. It's one of the hardest realities for us as a church is that people live a long ways away from each other. How do we get people together when you live 40 minutes from where I live, right? And so a corrective to that would be to get a little bit more hyperlocal. And a corrective against big would be to get a little bit more small. And a corrective against the overemphasis of individual salvation or personal spirituality would be to get a little bit more communal. And so best we can tell, our little church represents five counties and nine towns and 75 neighborhoods. And what would it look like to get to know them a little bit more? So. Our house church is really church. Well, I think that what we're trying to do here is not be novel or contrarian or creative. We're trying to reclaim something important. 
that has been lost along the way because church is not just a gathering around a stage, it's a gathering around a table. Jesus shows up there. And that's why we're called the parish. Uh, I want to end with this and a couple quick slides and then I know we got to get to the table here. But I found some notes from May 2014 uh, when Eddie started our church. I was going through Dropbox, which is always fascinating. What's living on our Dropbox? This is from the initial vision of the church, May 2014. Our vision was to see a collection of local communities transformed by Christ and empowered to be his church. I didn't even know the extent. I, I had some rough edges of this, but look at how much this matches what we're talking about doing here. And this was, what, six, eight years ago. Um, go to the next one for me. The parish is radically local. Instead of building programs to draw people in, we focus on relationships that naturally reach out to a lonely and disconnected world. Our current target location is the Alpharetta area, but our desire is to eventually plant other parish churches in places of need along the Georgia 400 corridor. The, the parish didn't exist when this was written, right? Okay, go to the next one. Instead of creating one large central congregation, our vision is to plan a network of neighborhood churches. As we grow, the parish will become a collection of smaller churches organized just like the neighborhoods we call home. This strategy provides small, approachable communities where people can build relationships, worship alongside their neighbors, and serve their local communities. Go to the next one. Each group will include prayer and a dinner, and every six months, the group will choose an activity to serve their local community together. How funny is that, right? Uh, each church will serve a geographical area and be responsible for the spiritual well-being of the entire community. All members of our church will act as servants within their area, transforming the world around them to reflect God's goodness, truth, and beauty. And the last one, as we grow, we use our unique God-given gifts and wiring to love and serve others. Each of us has a significant role in the work of renewal. Rather than consuming religious goods and services, we join in the project of seeing Christ's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven by loving and serving one another. Fascinating. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is on the move still in things written that none of us even knew about, or at least the, some of you probably knew that more than I did, but here we are kind of reclaiming not only a little bit of the church, but a little bit of our church as well. And so I'm excited about that. Uh, let's come to this table. And uh, as we come, I want us to think about this quote that I heard once from Brian Zond. He said, for all we know, we are the early church. And that blew my mind, right? Like there's this assumption that we're, we're coming to the end of all things, and perhaps. But what if, what if this thing goes on for another million years? <laughs> and, and I don't mean by that apathy, Right? We have work to do. But what I mean by that is to say we get to leave the church to the next generation. How are we going to do it? What's our story going to be? Let's pray. Jesus, would you meet us here as we come to this table and send us out to be your church? In Jesus' name, amen.